All right, today we have with us Dr. Paul Pajvani. He is a associate professor at Columbia University and also a uh, clinical instructor at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning, early Thanks in the morning. Yeah, Good morning. With our, with our coffee and pajamas. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I'm excited to have you on to have a discussion. I know we've we've uh, had casual meetings and discussions a lot, but I, I don't think we've ever sat down and had a serious discussion about your work. Uh, so I know you do a lot in terms of um, looking at the mechanisms for for development of diabetes, as well as uh, fatty liver disease, which is, of course, the most common live cause of liver problems in this country. Yeah. Um, so my lab studies essentially why both of these very common conditions happen. A lot of our work is based on the idea that um, there is a lot of overweight and obesity, but not everyone who's overweight and obese ends up with diabetes or fatty liver. Um, and there are people who aren't even overweight and obese that end up with diabetes or fatty liver. And trying to understand molecular mechanisms that lead to these problems is a core concept of our work. Yeah, so before we get into the details with your research, why do you think there's so much obesity in this country? Well, that's a tough question. I think... Um, or, or, or actually, I should say this world, because I think... Yeah, it, it is the world. We, we're very good at this in America, but other countries are, are catching up, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, my theory on this, and a lot of people have different theories, uh, but my theory on this is that um, very palatable food, uh, food that tastes good, has never been less expensive when, um, when adjusted for like our, our income now. Um, and we don't have to work very much to get it. Um, you know, one generation ago, we might have to walk somewhere to pick up something or, um, and two generations ago, we might have had to plant it ourselves or, or go out and maybe three generations ago, kill an animal before we could eat. But now if you want um, a very caloric dense uh, dinner, you go to your garage, get in your car, go through the drive-through at any one of our fast food places within a five mile radius, never actually have to leave the car, order 10,000 calories of food in for about 15 or $20 for your family, and come home, expended no energy, and um, ended up with calories enough for the day. And so I think, you know, weight is just calories in and calories out for the most part, right? And so if you're taking in those calories, maybe they're more than would have been predicted a generation ago, and you're expending far less calories in getting those calories into your system, then over time you gain weight. It's not yeah, you know, 100 pounds a year, but let's say it's one to two pounds a year. That's a lot over time. Right. And, and what's interesting is if you look at the countries with the most number of new cases of diabetes or 
the 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 increasing number of obesity um you know you just have to look at countries that are industrialized let's say over the last few decades i mean look at india and china i mean there's an explosion of of obesity and uh, type 2 diabetes and i think it's well as you said is because people are becoming more sedentary you know instead of more agricultural jobs now they're like us we're sitting in front of a computer <laughs> this is right. the most this is the most activity we get in a day and uh so, so people are taking desk jobs they're eating higher calorie food items um and and then you see this whole explosion of you know insulin resistance obesity ultimately diabetes yes the the so-called westernization of um of diet but also lifestyle. Um, you're absolutely right. Most of us nowadays are sitting in front of a computer um, all day. And um, this isn't, I think, a particularly healthy way to live. Um, the, I, there's no simple answer to it, right? You know, we all can't go out and get, you know, outside work. Um, we have our jobs. These are our, our professions, but they're very different than what they would have been a hundred years ago. This sort of work. Yes. Well, 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 even even in medicine, I think maybe two generations ago, we we would still be going from house to house doing house calls. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a when when my patients move from. Um, different parts of the country to, let's say, New York, um, and they live in the city now. Almost routinely, their weight goes down. And if they have diabetes, the amount of insulin they might take goes down. And a large, I think a large part of this is not that the food here is healthier. I don't think it is. I think it is what it is everywhere. It's just that you're taking a subway to go from place to place as opposed to going to your garage and jumping in your car. Um, so it's unlikely that the subway stop is at your apartment exactly. So even like, you know, a couple blocks walking after dinner, I think that's enough to make right. a substantial difference. Yeah, and, and, and I agree. I, I think there are research that shows that even if you do just like 15 minutes of something, twice a day that has greater benefits than if you do, you know, four hours a week, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah a, absolutely. Yeah, I think people have gone under the misconception that you have to have dedicated exercise time. Like, you have to go out for a jog for half an hour. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's intimidating from the perspective of, you know, it becomes like an event that you have to gear up for. But just a simple stuff of like, you know, going for a walk after dinner in your neighborhood. I think that if you can just do that every day and just to walk off your meal, I think that has benefit. Right. So, so you're telling me you don't power train four hours a day. I don't. I don't. <laughs> and in fact, I just got um, my electric bike. And so this is my new approach. I'm going to bike into work and mm -hmm. it's not going to be, um, this oh, crazy wow. uphills by my house. And so, um, I'm going to let the electric, uh, aspect of the electric bike do its job on the, on the uphills. So I don't get to work drip and sweat. But, um, you know, I think even this is like my way of like, you know, 
let's try to be active as much as possible. Right. You you just have to avoid those crazy drivers in New York. No, and New Jersey is not that different, honestly. I think I think <laughs> the the primary goal here is to get to work and you know not be maimed on the way. Yeah. Uh, so so what do you think uh, would be a solution to help curb this epidemic? There's no easy one. I mean, I think. I, and it's very difficult to, um, from a public health perspective, uh, figure out some strategy to get people moving more. I think there have been some relatively simple um, approaches that have been uh, tried. And for the most part, um, they can work, but I don't think there's a lot of support for it. Like I think what was proposed a few years back in New York City, a soda tax, makes a great deal of sense to me. Um, there is a long history of, uh, of public health measures to uh, approach what we would consider societal issues. That, uh, for instance, um, the amount of money that people have paid for a, car, a pack of cigarettes has gone up probably five to tenfold in, again, one generation's time. Mm. And I think that's led um, uh, or strongly contributed to the decline in smoking, which we know is a health risk, right? right. Um, and the same could be said for obesogenic foods, right? Foods that are have very little nutritional value, but primarily contribute to obesity. And I think there is not so, it's not so easy to categorize foods in this context, but I think it is easy to categorize drinks. I don't think you'll find anyone who thinks that there's any nutritional value in having a soda. Um, and so I'm a strong proponent of a soda tax and how far that will go, I don't know. It's certainly not gonna be the only answer. Yeah, well, what the, well there's no nutritional benefits None, but Not but all. you but you definitely get the reward pathway from from drinking the sugar and the you know getting the sugar rush and everything else that comes with it. Well, the same can be said for the nicotine and the cigarette. You know, yeah. there is a reward pathway that's activated. But we as a society said, you know what, smoking is dangerous, and mm -hmm. um, and there's no there's no real benefit to it, and 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 the. I, I believe the taxes on a car, on a pack of cigarettes is um, far in excess to the actual cost of the product. Right. But but even modest soda taxes, like five or ten cents per like liter, were voted down as being unfair, uh, which I find to be um, very silly because there is I I equate soda to functionally cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Well, if it was up to me, I would have the Dorito tax. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's my weakness. I can't. I can't stay away from Doritos. So, yeah. It's a, it's, see, for me, it's a slippery slope when it comes to foods. Though I 100% agree, there's probably not a lot of nutritional value in a Dorito either. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about your uh, research. I know, you know, we 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 have this whole epidemic of obesity, diabetes. And of course, with that comes, you know, fatty liver disease. So, so these are things that are 
I mean, I, I truly think these are conditions that's really going to bankrupt the, the the medical system. So, yep. so I, I I guess to start with, if you could just tell us in uh, in, in in layman terms what your research is about. So um, let's talk liver for an instant, um, because it's um, it's probably simpler to talk about one organ at a time. So in the liver, the the major cell type is the hepatocyte. That's the cell that makes most of the things in your body um, and it detoxifies the substances coming in so that it doesn't cause harm, right? Um, so that's the job of the hepatocyte. But another thing that the hepatocyte does is make sugar. Um, it takes precursors, waste products from um, other cells in the body and converts that to sugar. This is a good thing, actually. Otherwise, every time you went to sleep, you would die because you wouldn't have enough sugar to maintain um, brain activity. And so this happens sometimes for people who are taking like a medication that causes a big drop in sugar, right? They lose consciousness and or have a seizure. Um, the liver is your safeguard from that. Um, it makes sugar, keeps the blood sugar at a stable level. In people with type 2 diabetes, that process goes a little bit awry, and it makes sugar even when it shouldn't. So even if the blood sugar is perfectly normal, it starts putting out more and more sugar, raising the blood sugar, and it's one of the first things the patient sees, or their doctors might see. They get routine blood tests done, and um, they go in fasting, and oh, look, your blood sugar is a little bit high. Um, should be probably under 100, maybe should be under 80, but it's shown up at 110. And we say, oh, that might mean you have something called pre-diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, what that's mostly indicative of is your liver has become resistant to the effects of insulin. Insulin is the primary hormone in the body, hormone meaning a, a protein that's made by one cell that acts on another cell. In this case, the hormone is made by the pancreatic beta cell, acts on the liver, on the hepatocyte, and says, hey, we have plenty of sugar here. Stop making more. Um, And so that higher blood sugar is indicative of the liver being now resistant to the effects of insulin. And that's what we mean when we say insulin resistant, right? Now, over time, that leads to full-fledged diabetes, which is blood sugars exceeding, let's say, 125 in the morning fasting or 200 during the day, and so on and so forth. Um, but all of it starts from that hepatocyte. And in our lab, we're trying to figure out why that happens. Uh, why does that hepatocyte get insulin resistant? So, so what do you think comes first? Do you think it's the liver that's the cause of the insulin or, or the cause of the diabetes? Or do you think it's the insulin resistance that caused the, the fatty liver disease? I guess that's yeah. one of the questions is, you know, which one came yeah. first? Yeah, it, there is a bit of a chicken and egg scenario here because when you accumulate fat in the liver, when you get fatty liver, um, that contributes actually to that insulin resistance. So there are certain harmful fats um, that might make the hepatocyte more resistant to the effects of insulin. 
But how did the lipid get in there in the first place? It's a process that is increased in insulin resistance. It's a process called de novo lipogenesis, which is making fat from smaller pieces of, uh, of uh, protein. So fat can cause insulin resistance, and insulin resistance causes fat. So there, it, But in the end, we don't know really what comes first. But since they cause each other, it becomes essentially a vicious cycle. You get fat, you become insulin resistant. Insulin resistance then causes more fat, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. So yeah, so so that's the dilemma. I mean, I I think this is why I make it so hard to to tackle this um, you know epidemic with obesity and and diabetes is because we we don't know really where to target. You know, there, yeah, that's right. You know, you can think of it. I think um, very upstream and say, well, we need people to eat less, but it's hard for people to eat less, right? Mm -hmm. The food itself has, um, the food we like is very satiating. Um, there's pleasure we get generally speaking from eating uh, food that has high sugar, high salt, high fat content. If you um, give, two cages of mice, which we do in the lab routinely, um, their normal food, which is very bland, very nutritious, or food that has high fat, high sugar, high cholesterol, they're going to go to the, the palatable food every time, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just us. It's, it's all species, generally speaking, will aim for that higher calorie food. You could definitely see there's an evolutionary benefit of that, because if you're out you know, if you're if you're out as as a hunting gathering society, you know you want to maximize the number of calories when you can find it. And then, that's absolutely right. You know, we're we're not evolution has made it such that we are trying to stay alive, not um, in in a difficult resource poor environment. Um, that's not us right now, but evolution hasn't worked fast enough, I think, to try to stave off diabetes. <laughs> Statistics are staggering. I mean, I think they said by 2030, about 50% of the world's population will either have pre-diabetes or diabetes. So already in this country, um, you know, we define overweight and obesity by body mass index, right? Um, so I think the most recent data is about 40% of Americans are obese by BMI criteria. Another third are overweight which means under 30% of Americans are at healthy body weight. Um, you know, these sort of categorizations are essentially categorizations of risk. So we don't, as, as doctors, you and I know, we're not just trying to call people overweight and obese. We're trying to make sure that they're aware of the health risks that go along with that. Mm -hmm. And so if 70% of this country is at unhealthy body weight, yeah, it's almost like a foregone conclusion that eventually the the end of that story is health risks like diabetes, like hypertension, like fatty liver. And the fatty liver um, might be the most common risk of them all. Um, almost everyone I see in my diabetes practice who has type 2 diabetes has fatty liver. Mm -hmm. Fatty liver is just when 5% of your liver is now fat. Um, that's just a, the definition of it. 
Now, that is a problem, as we talked about, because that could make you more insulin resistant and could probably make the diabetes harder to control. But over time, that fatty liver could lead to inflammation in the liver, which is basically immune cells coming in and causing some havoc. Um, one of the things that that might then do is to activate cells that live in the liver that normally their only job is to store all the vitamin A in your body. That's really their only job. But once they get activated by all that inflammation, they start to lose that vitamin A storage capacity and make collagen. Collagen is a protein that forms these fibers. Over time, that becomes fibrosis. And over time, that becomes cirrhosis, which many of our patients already know and think about as, you know, a complication of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Cirrhosis is just, you know, your liver becomes hard and not functional. Now, the most common cause of cirrhosis is not alcoholism. It's not hepatitis viruses. It's being overweight. It's from fatty liver. Mm -hmm. And there's no medication at all for that. The only way you can treat that is by getting a liver transplant. And there are not enough livers in the world for that. Well, for cirrhosis. Oh. But, but the best treatment for fatty liver disease is weight loss. Absolutely. So, yeah, you, you have to attack it earlier. So if, if your doctor says, listen, you have prediabetes or you have fatty liver, think of that as your early warning sign. Think of that as, um, you know, we caught something before it becomes a big problem. And there, you know, some minor weight loss, minor is easy for me to say, but 5% of your body weight would be enough to reverse that fatty liver, would be probably enough to reverse that insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And 5% for someone who weighs 200 pounds is 10 pounds, right? Um, so going from 200 to 190, and I use that 200 on purpose. 200 is about the average weight of an American male now. Right. right. And 190, you're still overweight. We're not asking you to get back to your high school weight. I right. think we get back to your weight from five years ago, and all of a sudden you've reversed a lot of the medical issues that right. you could have. And, and, and that's, that's a very good point because that's why I tell my patients too, is we, we don't want you to get back to your ideal body weight. And, and in fact, the ideal body weight is not ideal. You know, mm -hmm. it's in, in reality, and I, and, and I usually distinguish between medical weight loss and cosmetic weight loss. You know, because of yeah. course, med, you know, medical weight loss, you just have to lose about 10 to 15% of your current body weight. As to cosmetic weight loss, you know, if you want to go from, let's say, 200 pounds to, to, to a, to a bikini model, I, mm -hmm. I don't, I, <laughs> I don't think that's re realistic or sustainable. So, mm -hmm. so what I tell my patients is, you know, you just have to lose enough weight to get healthier, and then to be able to get to a weight where you feel comfortable maintaining. Yeah. So. Yeah. The maintenance itself is very difficult, right? So, and the more people do research on this, the more we understand why. If you were to lose, let's say, 5% of your body weight, let's say you lose 10%, you're wildly successful on a diet that you think you might be able to sustain long-term, and you go from 200 to 180, your brain is still thinking of you as a 200-pound person. 
and it slows down your metabolism accordingly because it's remember it's there it's evolved to try to maintain status quo and it doesn't think your status quo is high school weight it doesn't think your status quo is your current weight it thinks your status quo is your highest weight which mm -hmm. it then calls your set point and so the brain's job is to defend that set point and mostly the way it does that is it doesn't really change your food intake it changes how much body how much energy you expend like that same one mile walk whereas it may have expended 50 or 80 calories now expends 40 calories even just resting we all expend energy just sitting around even not very much but the brain decreases the amount of energy we expend doing that and if you go back to that very simple calorie in calorie out idea if the calorie in is the same because you're very successful in maintaining a diet that you think you can uh, maintain long term, mm -hmm. but the calorie out now has dropped by 20%, all of a sudden you won't lose any more weight. You'll plateau and then you'll slowly gain that weight back. Right. And that's where you really have to increase your exercise, I think, to try to convince your brain. Hey, I'm not sick. I'm, I'm just active. Right. And, you know, I think yeah. exercise is the best way to do that. And, and that's, you know, that's one thing, too, is for as complicated the human body is, it, it, the, the human body has, a, has one job, and that is to survive. It's, it's a very primitive response, and all your body wants to do is to keep you alive. And it doesn't matter so much how it keeps you alive. So, so if it detects a 20-pound weight loss... Uh, to your brain that is considered as a, you know, it, it sets off an alert system that you're losing weight and, yeah. and, that it, and that it must do whatever it can to preserve and hold on to that weight. Yeah, that's not the time. So the brain's evolved at a time where, you know, calories were at a premium. If you wanted to eat something, you had to go out and shoot it, right? And mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking that and there's a lot of good research as to try to figure out how that is, right? So, you know, we're endocrinologists, right? Um, thyroid hormone is a very metabolically active hormone. Um, that's why when people get hypothyroid or lose thyroid hormone, um, they tend to gain weight because you're losing that um, active thyroid hormone. What happens when people lose a lot of weight and this is work done um, at Columbia and Rockefeller and many other institutions by uh, one of my mentors, Rudy Leibel, is um, the thyroid hormone becomes inactivated um, because the brain thinks you're sick, right? And so mm -hmm. it doesn't want you to become, it doesn't think you should be active. It thinks you should be trying to conserve calories. And so that active thyroid hormone becomes um, lower and you become functionally hypothyroid not a lot mm -hmm. a little bit so and so, that's just one response yeah so just yeah. to clarify so you're saying that the production of thyroid hormone is still the same but yep. is it the conversion from t4 to reverse t3 that increases that's exactly right so t4 being made in the thyroid it's still produced at the same rate um but T4 can be converted to T3, which is active, or reverse T3, which is inactive. And when, you, when you've lost all that weight, 
the brain wants to like put a break to that, right? And so mm-hmm. it, it there are a lot of changes that happen in the brain and in the periphery that then force that T4 down the reverse T3 path instead of the active T3 path. And right. all of a sudden that same thyroid hormone doesn't have the same effect. All right. And it's a, and it's a difficult dilemma because, you know, of course, with, with other studies that have looking at um, uh, patients that are acutely ill or critically ill is when, when you replace the T3, because, of course, you get this shift towards inactivated reverse T3. But I think when you re- even if you replace the T3, I don't think it's very clear if there's a clear beneficial effect. I agree with you. I don't think there is really. And I think that's been tried in acute illness. And I think there are people who've even tried it for um, obesity. And Mm -hmm. it's not a, it's probably not a safe approach. Like you might be able to lose some weight, but you're going to replace that with other toxicities, especially in your heart and bones. Right. Right. And and it's, and the other thing is, is it sustainable? You know, yeah. I, I mean, once once you stop it, then the weight comes right back. That's yeah. That's like a lot of our medical weight loss therapies. When you stop the medication, the weight comes right back. So as doctors, you know, people think that we're are, we're there mostly to push medication on them. Not at all true. I I prefer my patients on no medication if possible. Right. I I would prefer them to um, change their life a little bit such that they don't need the medication especially mm-hmm. for things like type 2 diabetes yes so so you're telling me your your your, your profession is as as an endocrinologist is not to push medications <laughs> that's exactly i tell my patients this too i say nothing gives me more pleasure when i take someone off of medication it really gives me a lot of pleasure yeah and i and i think patients appreciate that yeah, well, I think it's true. I think it's true for all of us. When we all want our patients to be healthier, such that you know, well, they well, don't need more and more medication to treat the same condition. Yeah, I mean, put it this way: I myself don't like taking medications. Yeah. You know, I I I don't want to be on ten different medications every day. Right. The, I mean, our standard medication for type 2 diabetes is a pill called metformin right Mm -hmm. super safe very effective inexpensive all the good things you want from a medication but still people have to take it every day once or twice a day it's a big pill there's nothing there's nothing natural about the process right Mm -hmm. um and if you have to do it you have to do it you know if you need to take a medication to control your diabetes so that you don't end up with complications from diabetes that's what you got to do but the much, much better approach is obviously, you know, maintain a healthier lifestyle such that you don't need the medication. Or maybe from the beginning, if you change your habits early, um, maybe it never even got to a place where your doctor would even notice something was up. And that's exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think this is a good segue to talk about uh, different lifestyle changes that people can do. I. I know we've we've spoken about this in the past. We we've spoken about things including uh, you know intermittent fasting or restrictive time feeding. We've we talked about ketogenic diets. Um, in your opinion, like is there a, a advantage of one lifestyle change over the other 
that may help people lose the 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 unhealthy weight and help maintain it i don't know that there is uh the perfect diet or the best diet in fact i'm going to be near certain in saying there probably isn't i think it's a diet that you can maintain um i um so all the studies when they are done when they're done well have shown modest benefit for any individual diet across a population. So there was a really interesting study um, that was published earlier this year by a group from UCSF led by Ethan Weiss, who's a cardiologist, um, where he studied time-restricted eating um, across a population and uh, compared that to, um, I forget, he had a clever way of saying routine eating. I can't remember his uh, moniker for that, but it was essentially three meals a day at normal time. Um, and across the population, there was no benefit at all for time-restricted eating as compared to normal eating patterns. But there's so much variation within each group. There are people that lost 15 pounds and there are people that gained 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, as full disclosure, I do time-restricted eating or some variation on this where I don't eat after, let's say, 9 p.m. and I usually don't eat breakfast. So then by the time I eat lunch at 1, I haven't eaten for 16 hours or so. Um, I'll drink coffee. Mm -hmm. Need coffee. Yeah, black <laughs> coffee, no milk, no sugar. Um, and there's probably something healthy about that fasted state, right? That, and a lot of research has gone into it. But I think, you know, um, if you, for instance, then from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. ate the same amount of food you would have normally eaten over 24 hours, I don't think there would be weight loss benefit. Because I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on this calorie in, calorie out equation. Thermodynamics is mm. hard to disprove. You know, I think the physicists are probably smarter than us as doctors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and I do that myself too, because we've discussed about this uh, before. I usually stop eating like seven or eight at night, and then I go, you know, at least 16 hours and, uh, Sometimes if the day gets busy, I, I don't even eat for 23 hours. Wow. Yeah, but I, but I think it's, I, I think there definitely is a benefit. I mean, for my own health, I have noticed a great improvement. Yeah, so for, for me personally, it seems to work pretty well. So, so there must be, but, you know, then again, during the eight hours that I do eat in a day, I don't, I, I don't try to consume, you know, 3,000 calories in that eight-hour period. Right. It's not a race to get your, your food. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you with full disclosure, my, um, I think across a population, each individual diet may not have a uh, substantial benefit, but for you, it might. Right. Mm -hmm. So we both do it. Right. I'm not sure. I haven't done it very systematically in the sense that I didn't measure my glucose and lipids before and after. The only thing I did measure was my weight. So I didn't do it at all. And then I adopted time-restricted eating. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I measured my body weight probably every day for four months. And it went down, um, not a lot, maybe two, three pounds. You know, for four months, that's not terrible, actually, if that was someone was looking at that as an outcome. But it was not a weight that I was happy with. So I had to think about what else I was doing in my the time that I was eating mm-hmm. that might make a, a bigger difference. Um, and this is going to sound uh, crazy as an endocrinologist, but I've admitted it to my patients. I'll admit it to your viewers. You know, for, for 30 years of my life, every night after dinner, I'd have ice cream. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it's, it was my, my dessert was ice cream. Um, and so then I decided to say, what happens if I replace that ice cream with something that I would find equally satisfying or close to equally satisfying? And it took a little, you know, um, time to figure out what I would find equally satisfying. But over time, I figured it out for me. And I replaced that bowl or two of ice cream with um, goat cheese, fruit, and nuts. Um, and so the variety comes from the fruit. It depends mm-hmm. on what's in season. Right now, I'm putting pineapple in there and nuts. And it's not light in calorie because the nuts are fatty and the fruit has calories and the goat cheese has calories. But that, for me, made the difference. Mm-hmm. And over the next three months, I told you it lost two or three pounds. Over the next three months, I lost about 12 pounds. Wow. And it's been very easy for me to maintain that um, now for the last three years, just because I find it equally satisfying. But that may not be the same for every single person. Mm-hmm. Each person has to figure out what that they're eating that might not be healthy, that they can replace with something that they find equally satisfying, but less calories. Um, and over time, that's gonna have substantial benefit. Yeah, and, and that's, that's great advice to find something that you find that is healthier and healthier option. It may not, may not be the perfect option, but it's the healthier option. Yeah, no, but but it's uh, you know it's just finding these little substitutions. It's um, and what 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 the other thing too is maybe the the timing of the eating of the ice cream too. I mean, do do you think it would have been the same if you had the ice cream every day at two p.m. versus eight p.m.? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, there are people who believe that um, that time restricted eating study didn't work because it was a very liberal time window. And some people think that the the eating window should be between 7 a.m. and 3 p.m., for instance. Same eight hours, but just uh, moved up because of um, uh, some research that indicates that it matters the time of day um, when you eat. I'm, I'm a little bit less convinced by it, though I am keeping an open mind, of course, but I'm a little bit less convinced by the research at this moment. Um, that it matters a great deal um, or it matters a uh, great enough deal to make such a substantial lifestyle change for me. Um, Eating 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., I mean, think about all the social interactions that you miss out on. You don't eat dinner with your family. You don't go out with your friends. There's 
it might be slightly better based on the research primarily done in mice, mm -hmm. but probably not enough for me to value it in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just getting back to this uh, timing of eating. So I, I know recently, and I can't quote the authors that does, did this research, but a couple months ago, I did read some uh, literature about um, you know, comparing uh, different groups, you know, groups that eat earlier, their biggest meal early in the day versus groups that eat uh, their biggest meal later at, at night. And they did find that there is an increased risk of cardiovascular events in people who eat their biggest meal at night. So I just yeah, want to I get think, your opinion on that. Yeah, I think I've read that same study. It might have been a study by uh, Sachin Panda, um, who's been a leader in this field now for the last few years. Um, the, I think there, there's probably some truth in this, right? I, I think um, it makes a fair amount of intuitive sense as well. Like if you eat and then go right to sleep, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the idea of like, is metabolism going to treat that food the same way as if you eat and then have another seven, eight hours of activity? Kind of, it makes intuitive sense that the latter would be better, right? That you'd want to, you know, burn it off as we might colloquially say. Um, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've always been a proponent of, small and incremental advance um, with uh, for for our patients, right? If you ask them to do something dramatically different, it may work for a few people out of a hundred. But if you ask them to make a small change, but an easy one, that might work for a larger percentage. But I think for people that can do it, it's worth a try. It's not, I, there's no harm in it, I think, in trying. Mm. And again, it gets back to the idea that across a population, let's say you study a thousand people, they're not all going to react to the same intervention exactly the same. Um, and so if, if you're a, a big responder to um, the, the 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. eating window, and if that is a manageable thing for you, it's worth a try. It's probably slightly better. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the challenge is not everybody responds the same to the same thing. I mean, even if you look at ketogenic diets, you know, some people do great and some people it, it barely did anything except, you know, make them suffer from not eating any carbs. Right, right. <laughs> So, so, so I think that's the challenge. The challenge is to find out who will respond to what lifestyle change. I, I don't know if there's an easy way to do that. Yeah, there isn't a, there isn't a predictive way to do that. I think it's more of a trial and error. And I think, um, you know, here is one where I think the, the N of one experimentation is the right approach. You got to try to see what works for you. Um, I mean, I do it for myself um, to see what works for me. And we all do this kind of naturally, right? You know, 
Um, I think the important thing is to recognize that it's an important thing to try and then to try something to to interrupt right. the pattern. Right. And if it doesn't work, you know, the 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 goal is not to give up. The, the goal is just try something else. Maybe it'll work exactly. better for your system. That's right. You know, it's because I know uh, I have patients who would do great on a Mediterranean diet, you know, or, or, or patients that do great by, you know, I should have a patient who just stopped eating after 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. And she lost, I think, over a period of six months, she lost like 30 pounds. And, and, and that's... It's... Yeah. And and that's all she did. So it's 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 interesting to see who who responds to these things. So I think the studies have shown that whenever people pay attention to what they're putting in their mouth, they eat less. Um, so when people are diagnosed with celiac disease, which is gluten intolerance, mm-hmm. and they're reading labels all the time, they're being more careful. Um, they they end up losing weight because not because there's something wrong with that di- their digestive tract in fact it's probably getting better um, but they're just very much aware of what they're putting in their mouth and they don't eat mindlessly mm-hmm. I think if you're eating you should eat with um, with mindfulness which is that you know you want this you want to eat this and you think it's important to you to eat um, you know, it's difficult to do this all the time. You're watching, I'm watching the Giants game later, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and, and they're terrible, but, and so I want to assuage some of my feelings of why am I wasting time watching a terrible team and I'll pick something up, you know, but you try to do the best you can and you just don't give up. Yeah. So what do you think? What, what do you think ultimately is the way to, help society move in a healthier direction? Yeah, that's a tough question. I don't know. I, I mean, I think that um, it's a tricky, it's a very tricky problem, right? Because we're trying to work against um, our own brains, which have been, um, which have evolved to like food that is high in calorie and um, want to preserve body weight. So there's not going to be a simple answer to that. Mm -hmm. I think um, small things that people can do at an individual level will have great, uh, great potential benefit. Like we talked about today with diet and lifestyle. I think from a public health perspective, it becomes much, much harder. Um, and much more controversial, clearly, where even I think really small interventions like a five cent soda tax prompted so much backlash. And that, I don't think five cents is going to dissuade someone from buying a two liter of Coke, you know? Um, I would think of that as just the first step along the way of, uh, you know, how the cigarette taxes work to reduce the smoking uptake in a generation. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's an easy solution. I think we just have to keep trying to reach people on an individual level to make sure that they know that this is important and, and achievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Either, either lifestyle or more drugs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And who wants to take more medication, right? You know, and it's expensive and they, yeah comes with potential side effects, I think there is a better way. 
Yeah, and that's the hard part. The hard part is changing a culture, you know, changing what we've been brought up. We've, we've all been brought up to think food as a good thing. Yeah. But now, but now, you know, of course, too much of a good thing is also a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think there are a lot of, I think, more systemic interventions that could have benefit. I rode to work yesterday. Um on my bike and getting to the bridge there wasn't a bike lane to be found getting across the bridge um the there is a bike lane with pedestrian access too but it's so narrow you know i think if we really wanted to um make it easier for people to do things that we consider benefit mm-hmm. um we should do that you know there should be bike lanes everywhere there should be um parks everywhere there should be opportunities for people to go out and do things exercise now now just to change the direction a little bit this is just for my own curiosity uh, just going back to the issue with fatty liver disease so we know there's no treatment other than weight loss but are there any potentially beneficial drug therapies that are available? So there are things, there are medications already on the market that we use in in endocrine practice um, that may have benefit for fatty liver. Um, So the GLP-1 analogs, so that's Victoza and Trulicity and Ozempic are probably the big three now, but there are several others on the market. Um, there have been studies in people that show that they can reduce the amount of liver fat and reduce the amount of liver inflammation. Yeah, and yeah, that is that, mm-hmm, is that that's good. Yeah, is that is that independent of the weight loss, or is that as a do you think that's an effect of the weight loss it causes? See, that is less certain. So these medications cause weight loss uh, on average between five and 10 pounds, um, though results may vary. Um, And a lot of the benefit of these medications may be weight loss, but I don't think all of them. I don't think all of them. Um, Certainly for people with diabetes, there are weight independent effects of the medications to make the insulin production a little bit better in the beta cell. In liver, I'm less certain. I'm less certain. Um, there are other medications that are coming through clinical trials that may also have benefit that have shown some early signs of efficacy for fatty liver, for NASH, even to reverse existing fibrosis, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think within the next few years, there will be medications approved specifically for NASH and NASH-associated fibrosis. Um, but I really think the big game changer here would be to interrupt the process at the start, prevent people from getting it. Mm-hmm. Now, 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 these potential treatments, are they targeting at decreasing the inflammatory response in the liver? Is it to increase the triglyceride transport out of the liver? So some of them are working in ways that we're not quite sure. Um, 
There are certainly medications coming through that are looking to reduce the amount of inflammation in the liver. Um, so the liver, like all of our tissues, has immune cells that are there on purpose to try to protect the tissue, try to protect you. Immune cells are good, right? Um, if you don't have immune cells, then you don't have immunity, and then you have um, more susceptibility to bacteria and viruses like we're feeling now. Um, but there are not, not all immune cells are the same, and there are entire classes of immune cells that cause um, probably damage, inflammation, that then activates those cells that lay down the collagen in the liver. So there are new classes of medications that try to prevent infiltration of those immune cells into the liver. So if they never get in there, then they can't cause the damage. Mm -hmm. There are other approaches where um, the drug is trying to change the metabolism of the hepatocyte. One of the interesting ones actually is working uh, in a way that we might find uh, interesting as endocrinologists um, through thyroid receptor. Hmm. So thyroid receptors come in two flavors, alpha and beta. Um, and one of them we know very well, um, alpha. Alpha effects are predominantly metabolic. Um, they're present on the heart, which is why if you take too much of thyroid hormone, you might get rapid heart rate, even an abnormal heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. And on the bone, which is the other, you know, primary side effect of being hyperthyroid is you can get osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. The other flavor is beta. So thyroid receptor beta um, has primarily metabolic benefits and it's not really there on the heart and bone. And so there are companies that are taking advantage of that to try to rev up liver metabolism. If you rev up the liver metabolism, then they get rid of the lipid that's already there. All that fat that's in the hepatocyte gets burned off. That sounds all good. And so there are companies trying to leverage that in, in therapy. Wow, that'll be exciting. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I'm not sure how this is going to play out. It's liver disease, right? So this should be in the domain of gastroenterology, which it historically has been. But the most promising approaches to, to fatty liver and NASH seem to be endocrine, um, either by using existing medications that we already use for diabetes, just um, repurposing them for fatty liver, or like this TR-beta agonist, which I think is very interesting. And again, it's another endocrine modulator. All right, but enjoy your Sunday. Thank you for taking the time to, uh, to, to enlighten us this morning. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to go and do my 16 hour fast today <laughs> after our discussion. It's a good way to start the morning. Coffee and diabetes talk in pajamas. I think that could be uh, a, a new a new idea. <laughs> well, you know, it it uh, really puts your day into perspective. So, you know, when when my daughter makes pancakes this morning, I'm gonna think about it before I pop a few of those and in, you know into my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and skip the syrup, maybe. <laughs> And hopefully we'll have another uh, riveting discussion soon. My pleasure. That was fun. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.